Liz M. Clift, and we read by Sarah Feathers. Liz's fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Booth, Tulane Review, Hunger Mountain, Green Mountains Review, and others. She lives in Western United States, and she's got a blog. Sarah Feathers, trained at East 15, theatre work includes Country Magic, All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders, and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky, and More Than Words. And television includes The Real King Eric. Sarah! Instructions for Burying Your Best Friend by Liz N. Clift. Number one. Mark Hamilton's sister will call at 407 a.m. on June 18th, the year you were 24, from Germany, where Mark was airlifted because of an IED. You'll be up when she calls. Not because she calls. Getting you ready to go to work at the chain bakery that loves to feed ya. Two. Sit on the edge of your bed, staring at her name on the caller ID. Consider not answering. No good calls come before dawn. Not the year you're 24. Not the year you're 32 either. Three. Answer. Listen. Note how calm her voice sounds, as though she's recounting the facts of her day over barbecued chicken and grilled corn, offering to pour you another glass of Chenin Blanc, as though it's still the evening of August 31st, 14 days before her little brother deploys. Four. Swallow the Lincoln log that lodges in your throat. Five. Say, thank you. Say, I'm sorry. Say, of course I'll call friends. Say, do you need the dog walked? Six. Walk your own dog and look for shooting stars. Seven. Drive three miles to Mark's sister's house. Call in sick to work while you're walking Ginger. Clean up the mess Ginger left on the floor and take out the trash. Poor dog. Alone in the house for 18 hours. Eight. Put Ginger in the passenger seat of your car. Fastened in with your dog's doggy seatbelt harness. Nine. Go home. Start writing down memories of Mark because you're afraid you'll forget. Start with when you met, when you were in eighth grade and he was in ninth at the skate rink. Write these memories on the computer. Save frequently. Trust me on this. Ten. Realize you haven't cried yet. Wonder if this makes you unfeeling. Be grateful to Mark for deciding, just before he deployed, 
the two of you shouldn't date. Hate him a little for it, too. Eleven. Mark Hamilton's sister will call again at 10.42 a.m. with details about the funeral. Realize you haven't started calling friends yet. Pour yourself two fingers of whiskey neat. Make it three. Twelve. Don't drink. You will regret it. Whiskey feels worse coming up. Stare at the glass instead. Thirteen. Make a list of people you should call. Fourteen. Promise yourself you won't leave messages. Fifteen. Start making calls. Cross off the name of each person you call. Don't let your voice break. Don't let yourself cry. Sixteen. Finish the calls before noon and decide you want to nap. Take the whiskey with you. Still three fingers. And put it on the bedside table. We found dumpster diving near the college just after you graduated. Seventeen. Stare at the ceiling and wish for dreamless sleep. Eighteen. Wonder if you should call your parents and let them know. Decide you'll call later. Probably. Spoiler. You'll never call. But you should. Nineteen. Lose the day. Twenty. Go to work the next day and pretend everything's fine. Take Adderall, bought from your ex, to help you focus. Twenty-one. Lose days until the funeral and forget to eat. But don't miss work. You've got bills to pay. Twenty-two. Wear a red sweater and gray skirt to the funeral. Even though it's May and it's hot already. Mark loved that sweater. Complimented you whenever you wore it. Twenty-three. Grief will make you skinnier. After the funeral, friends will ask how you're doing. Lie. Twenty-four. Find Mark's family. Hug his sister and hand his nephew a teddy bear in a Marine Corps uniform. Twenty-five. Shake hands with Mark's brother-in-law and parents. You don't know them well. You won't see them again. Twenty-six. Get in your car and drive to get lost. Twenty-seven. Consider leaving everything you know. You've always wanted to see how you do on your own, starting over from scratch. 
Nick's the idea. Now is not the time for rash decisions. You'll ignore this advice, but you shouldn't. 28. Pull out your map, but don't unfold it. Remember the time you got lost on the way to a wedding with Mark the year before? You'll smile when you think about how you made out in a gas station parking lot. You are a yellow dress, printed with hibiscus. 29. Put the map away. Follow country roads and highways, past dead gas stations and fields of sunflowers, past fields of oil derricks, half idle, and crumpled skyscrapers, past cornfields, and a sign that advertises Jesus and a truck stop nine miles ahead. Until you find your way home. Thank you, Sarah. Our fifth story of the evening will be Everlasting by Nigel Robinson and be read by Clive Greenwood. Having completed a creative writing course with the Open University, Nigel's main ambition is to play blues guitar at Ronnie Scott's. He lives in South London and in the belief that all men should experience a little misery in their lives, he's a Millwall season ticket holder. The Clive just filmed two new children's TV shows, Little Fergie, sorry, just filmed a new children's TV show, Little Fergie, and appears in two upcoming features. Mob Handed and Young Pretender. He returns to Kent Rep as Tranio in Taming of the Shrew this summer and co wrote Goodbye, The Afterlife of Cook and Moore at the Gilded Balloon and Leicester Square Theatre. Five. Everlasting by Nigel Robinson. The squat dog made eye contact with the tubby little man with the toothbrush moustache, seeming to take exception to his appearance. With a throaty growl, its lips slid back to reveal a silo of yellow teeth. On the thronged platform, waiting for the 758 to Liverpool Street, Morris Bloom said, I hope you're going to keep that thing under control. Standing next to him, the dog's owner a skinny kid with ripped jeans and a tattooed face, was reading a heavy, tombstone-covered paperback of horror stories. He was connected to the beast by a thick length of rope. The kid said nothing, gave the rope a jerk, and with the insolence of youth, looked through Morris as if he wasn't there. Morris wondered if his fellow traveller would take more notice of him if he were to slip off his beige corduroy jacket and let it drop to the floor. Perhaps he would react if Morris were to remove his polka dot tie and then teasingly, one by one, undo the buttons of his shirt before whirling it over his head and letting it fly away. But Morris felt a slight lurch of depression 
move inside him. He knew the thing the kid would remember most would not be his face or even his stripped teeth. It would be the bruises. The yellow-edged, purple bruises that stained the skin of Morris's plump, 50-year-old body like Monet's water lilies. To hell with him, Morris thought. He pretended to ignore the glaring animal's bristling back, continued to read his out-of-date copy of the Times. But as the train slowed to a halt in front of him, Morris found he didn't want to move. The thought of going to work, spending yet another day in his stifling little office, keeping tabs on the supplies of paper clips and post-it notes, the everyday working trivia required by his betters, suddenly filled him with dread. His legs had grown unaccountably stiff, as if the mechanical parts, the bevels of his kneecaps, the ball and socket joints in his ankles, had become immovable, silted up with indecision. Two minutes later, alone on the deserted platform, he stood statue still, a self-marvelling monument to his own recklessness. He made up his mind. He wasn't going to go to work. He was going to go home. He was going to go home and murder his wife. <laughs> it was only a small decision. Almost like something flitting out of the corner of his eye, an indefinable shiny trinket of thought that was without shape or form. But it was a thought that glittered with its own obvious logic. The equation was beautiful in its simplicity. Mrs. Bloom, alive and breathing, result, misery. Whereas Mrs. Bloom, not breathing and under the sod, result, happiness. <laughs> Though he wasn't a fan of detective fiction, Morris knew enough to understand that in the aftermath of a murder, it was vital to sustain a routine. Nothing should appear out of the ordinary to arouse suspicion. Once he disposed of Mrs. Bloom, he'd stick to his routine like glue. But for now, he needed time to think, time to plan. He knew that his immediate problem was how best to transfer his wife from this world to the next. Straightforward one-on-one -on -one combat wasn't an option. <laughs> Mrs. Bloom, a spindly, fleet-footed flyweight to his own plodding bulk, would sneeringly dance around him, her vicious right-hand jab, taking full advantage of the fact that she knew he was a gentleman and therefore incapable of defending himself. No, Morris thought, as he ambled back down the station approach road, it would have to be something more subtle than simply beating the woman to a pulp. <laughs> he attempted to loosen his tightly knotted tie, but his chubby fingers couldn't find a pulling purchase. And there was the answer. Of course, it was simple. Wait until she'd eaten the evening meal that he always prepared for her. Wait until he'd put the usual gin and tonic in her liver-spotted hand. Wait until she was comfortably ensconced on the sofa, completely absorbed in one of her favourite TV shows. Then, on a quiet, 
slippered feet. He'd approach her from behind. And with his tie, he'd throttle the woman into extinction. It was sad that it had come to this. He hadn't always wanted to murder his wife. Up until last year, he actually quite liked her. But she brought it on herself. A year or so ago, he noticed that Mrs. Bloom's eyes looked as if they had been professionally polished. They had a gleam in them that he couldn't understand, and he was aware that she had a new, quietly simmering quality about her. Mrs. Bloom had found God. At first it didn't bother him. If it made her happy and kept her out of his way, then all well and good. But gradually her new demeanour, her new buzz and hubbub as she moved about the house, her alarming habit of bursting into a rousing chorus of all things bright and beautiful had started to wear him down. And the smug, self-righteous, upward thrust of her jaw as she gazed into the distance got on his nerves. It was, he thought, as if she truly expected Jesus to appear on the horizon. And because of her own blameless life, she'd be one of the first to bask in his everlasting light. His everlasting light. That was the title on one of the cheaply printed pamphlets his wife had started to leave all over the house. Like a spreading plague, there was no escape from them. Much to his disgust, she'd even left information on how he could be saved in the lavatory. <laughs> Everlasting light, my arse, he thought. And at last, Monday's breakfast table, things had come to a head. After consuming his bacon and eggs, Morris had leant back in his chair and flapped open his paper. You shouldn't bother with that, Mrs. Bloom said. Morris asked her what on earth she was talking about. It's all nonsense. Nonsense and lies. He ignored her with a grunt from behind his barricade of newsprint. Mrs. Bloom stood, and like a conjurer, revealing that the rabbit had vanished, whipped the paper from his hands and tossed it over her shoulder. <coughs> this is what you should be reading, she said, spittle flecking from her lips. She thrust a small Bible into her husband's face. This is the word of truth. Rubbish. Mrs. Bloom slapped him in the face with the speed of a Venus flytrap. <laughs> and Morris sat dumbfounded, unable to work out what had happened. His wife stood back, her, her hand at her mouth. I am so dreadfully sorry, she said. Morris looked at his wife's face saucer-eyed with shock at what she'd done. But he could see that there was something else there too. At the corners of her mouth, there was an almost hidden detail, like something buried in the small print at the bottom of a contract. A tiny smile that said, you deserve that. You deserve that because you are a non-believer. Morris stood up with as much dignity as he could muster, his hand covering his stinging cheek. His wife had obviously gone mad, and he wasn't going to debate the issue of her newfound fanaticism, but he was going to have the last word. 
in a measured tone, as if he were underlining every syllable, he said, I still say it is all complete and utter rubbish. Mrs. Bloom attacked him with a vicious, pummeling energy he could only briefly marvel at. As her knotty little fists found the gaps in his flailing, defenceless parries, concentrating again and again on his face and ribs, he could remember thinking, this nonsense will stop in a second, or the next, or the next one after that. And eventually, the battering did cease, and she let him slump back into his chair. He could hear the kitchen clock ticking in between his gasps for breath. But what really made a lasting impression on him was just how hard she brought down the stiletto of her shoe down on his head. <laughs> when he returned to their neat bay-windowed semi, Morris thought there was something odd about the place. A faint air that didn't feel like home. It was the same feeling he used to have when he returned from a holiday abroad. The house was the same, but different. A heavy silence hung in the kitchen, like a smothering shroud. There was no evidence of the mauling he'd received, nothing except a cleansing tang of disinfectant that rose from the gleaming floor. His assailant was nowhere to be seen, but her Bible lay on the table where she left it. There was no time to lose. Whistling a happy tune, Morris walked briskly down the garden path between the smooth green lawn and fetched a shovel the shed. He didn't ponder over the spot. It didn't matter much because the plot was completely screened by high trees and shrubbery. You could sunbathe as naked as the day you were born without disturbing the sensitivities of the neighbours. He congratulated himself on his calmness. When Mrs Bloom returned, he would be waiting. He would be humble. He would apologise for his insulting behaviour. Apologise for deriding her faith. And he'd lure the woman into a false sense of security. Then he'd loop his necktie around her throat, knowing that her final resting place was already in waiting. As he put his foot on the spade and inserted it into the grass, he noticed, it, he noticed a faint, sweetly rotten smell that reminded him of a long-forgotten packet of sausages. Sausages that he'd once found going green in the back of the fridge. He dug deeper and saw a curled corner of white paper sticking up through the churned turf like some exotic flower, stark against the dark soil. Morris dropped to his hands and knees and with fanned fingers brushed away the loose bottles of dirt. Gently, he pulled free a damp, sagging copy of the Times. And there he was, staring down at himself. His face, encased in a hood of earth, was grey and bloodless. His open, unseeing eyes were wetly collapsing into their sockets like empty jellyfish below the neat black hole in his head. He 
It watched in fascination as a shimmering millipede weaved its way through his dead moustache. The next morning, waiting for the 758 to Liverpool Street, the ugly dog near his feet growled up at him in greeting. I hope you're going to keep that thing under control, Morris said. The dog's tattooed owner said nothing, glanced past Morris's shoulder and gave its rope a tug. <laughs> Before the final story of evening, a few notices. Death cannot keep the liars down. <laughs> we shall be back to plot revenge on the 12th of November for cloak and dagger. There is just one more open submission for the year, which is December's Snow and Stars. You will find themes and deadlines and recordings and videos at the Liars website. And so on to the final story of the evening, which will be Dead and Dug Up by Jennifer Rickard and be read by Alex Woodhall. Jennifer lives in London and is an office skiddy by day, writer by night, and whenever her boss isn't watching. Her first novel was written age six and was a tale of epic adventure starring her guinea pigs. She still writes epic adventures, but with less guinea pig. Alex has worked in comedy for the last 14 years on stage, TV, and radio. He DJs extensively around the country in clubs, festivals, and in zombie chase games, and is half of the Coffin Dodgers disco. Interests include ballroom dancing, Native American art, and pornography. <laughs> He's over the moon to be back at Liars League. And he asks if Katie will now release the hostages. Alex. Dead and Dug Up by Jennifer Rickard. When we rose you from the dead, you came back different, which was good because you were kind of a jerk originally. I mean, you weren't terrible, I'm not saying that. You were just difficult. You had a, a difficult personality. Maybe that's what I mean. Words don't come so easily to me like they used to. You weren't looking your best once we'd finally dragged you out of the coffin. You were all kind of, I don't know, can't think of a good word. Moldering. Yeah, that's the closest. You were moldering. Of course, Ma and I weren't looking our best either, but that's what live chicken sacrifices and digging dirt in the rain for hours will do to your complexion. <laughs> Ma didn't care about that sort of thing, though. You didn't either. You would have before. You were always going on about your hair, and reading ads from the city about different treatments and putting strange-smelling gloop in it and all sorts. But you didn't care now. You just spat out a few teeth and said in a cold, deep voice, 
What do you want? He'd said that a lot of times before as well, but usually in a jerkish manner. No, not not the right word. Oh, you know what I mean. Uh, moaning and complaining when we asked for the least little thing and usually refusing to do all the important things outright. It was a dang trial trying to persuade you into anything. We had to keep asking you, though, because there was no one else. They all left long ago. You didn't. Anyway, you said it before. What do you want? But not like this. It was in a, this kind of, words, words, servile way. Like you genuinely wanted to know. Like you never wanted to know before. You never wanted to know anything. The less I know, the better, you'd always say we need you to do this again, Moore said. I'm dead, you said. You frowned for a bit. I mean, I was. Now, this would see, have seemed dangerously close to a complaint if you hadn't sounded so flat. You know, it, it, it was a kind of statement, not an accusation. I don't know. I used to be good at explaining stuff when I was a kid. You know, when Father Gray taught me stuff. When he said I was clever. When that thing happened with the others. And Ma and I had to drop it all. Like you dropped everything. For her. It was all a bit... I mean... I'm not complaining. It was just... I wish I remembered those words now. Okay, off topic, I'm sorry. Anyway, I was saying, you said it, but you didn't say it, if you get what I mean. Not like in the past, you would have said it. We got no one else, said Ma. We got to finish the work. You know that. Death should never get in the way. She always said that. Always, always. Usually, you know, after you'd finished the job, you'd come back shaking and pale, and she'd say it. She meant that it shouldn't get in the way of the bigger picture. You know, death shouldn't get in the way of what we were trying to achieve, of the work and all. You said, I know that. You remember the work? demanded Ma. It was raining. I mean, it was seriously raining now. There'd been drizzle, but it was getting worse. I just wanted to be home. It wasn't the best way of spending an evening, and there were chicken guts everywhere, and the sight of it was starting to make me feel sick. Let's go, I said. You both ignored me. Do you remember the work? Pressed Ma. Do the job, you replied. And don't ask why. Don't ask why, Ma repeated. That was the one thing you had done right. You'd listened to Ma and never questioned her. You just didn't like doing the job, you told me. Late at night, when Ma was asleep and we were hiding in our room and we weren't accomplices at that moment, but brothers. 
You didn't like doing it, you said. Which yet, okay, I get it. It's not exactly a career. And there's no pension plan to speak of. But you didn't have to go on about it so much. Death means nothing to you, you said. You'd said it before, but not in this echoing tone. More angry, shouting. You'd been shouting before, but not now. Mark took a photo out of a pocket. I'd seen it a lot lately. It was of Paul Jenkins at the last barn dance. He had a straw in his hair and a drink in his hand, and his face was flushed and smiling. Moore handed the photo to you. Your hand didn't shake when you took it. Well, that was new. Every time she'd handed you a photo before, you'd started shaking. And you went all pathetic and whispery and kept saying things like, no, no, and oh Lord, forgive me, and, and other such trash. And then you try and get out of it and uh, jerk much. This man killed you, said Ma. Killed me, you echoed. Shot you dead, Ma added. You did have a bullet hole right in your chest. And there were maggots in it. Oh, it was so disgusting. You wouldn't have stood for that before. You need to kill this man, Ma said, and gave you one of the lists. These lists went on forever and in minute detail. Weapon, location, blah, blah, blah. She got the detail from the others, the ones that gave the work. I've never met them. Don't think I ever will. You started to shamble away. You'd always walked so tall before. And then you stopped and turned around. And pieces were falling off your face. I mean, actual pieces of skin. Oh my God. <laughs> you said, he didn't. What? Said Ma. He didn't, you said. Kill me. You killed me shot me. I remember. I looked at Mom. She didn't look at me. She didn't deny it. She never denied anything. Not really. She just stepped around the truth. Things like, officer, if there's a corpse in our house, I think I'd know. Clever. Clever with words. Like me. And that's why I helped her. Left all that teaching and went to help her with the planning and things. I did the planning. You did the practical work. You killed him. I said to Ma, when you turned around again and continued on your mission. I made him better, Ma said. She grabbed at her forearm. It was getting colder as the rain got heavier. He was constricted by life. All that worrying, all those glands. Ah, made him better. I watched you shuffle out of the graveyard. 
least he's not so much of a jerk now, Archie Code. Yes, he'll obey everything, she said. All things. Let's go home. <coughs> you kept moving. I guess nothing could stop you now. And so our night of terrors is at an end. In a little while, you'll be able to rise once again, phoenix-like, from the still warm ashes of our combined grave, and ascend to the true nightmare that is Oxford Street. <laughs> but linger a little longer if you can. Speak to our devilish actors and our evil authors. <laughs> and finally, please, show them your appreciation by making enough noise to wake the dead. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 